right. My time is going down, so I want to jump into our message today. We're in our series, uh, Divine Shift, and uh, this series, we've been looking at uh, the life of Jesus. Now, oftentimes, his way of living and his way of teaching was a shift from the cultural and religious uh, norm of the day. And our first week, we looked at how uh, really that shift from uh, the woman who was caught in adultery and the religious system condemned her, but Jesus forgave her. Aren't you grateful that Jesus is still in the business of forgiving all sins? Uh, And then last week, we talked about this shift that Jesus made because in the Old Testament, there was a priestly class of people that were set apart. But in the New Testament, there's the priesthood of all believers, that you were actually called to be a minister at home, at work, in every area of your your life. And we talked last week about that. And today, um, I want to talk about from the passage of what's known as the widow's might, if you're familiar with scriptures. And um, uh, before we dive in, I want to pray. Uh, but today I want to talk about the title of today's message, um, take a deep breath, <sighs> called The Generous Life. We're talking about money today. Some of you are like, I knew I shouldn't have came to church today. Why did you invite me to this church? Don't turn, turn off, don't leave, uh, take a deep breath. Here's why we're talking about money, because uh, Jesus spoke more about money and possessions than he did heaven or hell. Uh, Jesus says, where your treasure is, there will be your heart. There are, there are less than 500 scriptures on prayer in the Old New Testament. There are less than 500 scriptures on faith in the Old New Testament. There are over 2,300 scriptures on your money and your possessions in scripture. Everybody say, God cares about my money. <laughs> God cares about your money. He cares about how you handle it. There's a, there's a clear correlation in scripture about how you handle your money and your relationship with God. So as someone who needs to be faithful to the word of God, as a preacher of the gospel, if I did not talk about money, I would not be faithful to his word. Now, let me all say this. We talk about money twice a year, typically as a church. Um, but typically it's twice a year. So if you're new to Catalyst, if you come back next year, it's not, or next week, it's not money part two. We're not in a 37-week series on money. Come on, somebody. <laughs> You've all been to that church. You're like, is this week again on money, right? We're not that. But we are biblical. We want to be faithful to the word of God. And let me just say this too. Some of you, what we share today, you are living the word of God out in the area of your finances. Like beautifully. I want to commend you. So many of you. This will be a review. Some of you, it will be new. But let me, say, let me say this. Every time we open the word of God, is in your own way, is to hear the word with fresh ears. Um, and regardless of your background, your perspective, maybe you've even had some false teaching on money. Had a conversation at the first service. Somebody said it was so helpful what you said here because growing up I heard this. Um, it's to hear it with fresh ears and receive the word of God today. Amen? All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you today for your word. It is truly a lamp unto our feet and a light into our path. We pray as we open it up that you would speak to us today. And we just posture our hearts this morning, Lord, to hear from you. We love you. We honor you, God. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Um, could someone, Christine, could you get some water if you're possible? Sorry. Thank you. Um, let's go to Mark chapter 12. Uh, if you have your Bibles, thank you so much. Uh, Mark 12, we're going to be in th- verse 38. Uh, we're going to read seven verses, and then we're going to kind of unpack this. These are the words of, of Christ. It says, As he taught, Jesus said, watch out for the teachers of the law. 
They like to walk around in flowing robes and greeted in respect to the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and places of honor, the banquets. They devour widows' houses and for show make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. Let me just stop for a moment. If you can imagine being in this environment, like you're in church, they're in a temple, and, and then these, these teachers of the law are walking around in their flowing robes, and they love to be commended and admired. And Jesus is saying these things out loud. You ever been somewhere where someone's talking about someone, and that person's in the room? Come on. That's what's happening. Jesus is saying, hey, these teachers of the law, he's teaching his disciples. These teachers of the law, they love, they're prideful. They, they love to be admired. They love to be commended. They, they, they love admiration. They will be punished most severely. Probably thinking like, whew, thank God that's not me. You know, like, and he's talking about them because he's teaching them a lesson. And he uses this term, they devoured widows' houses. To give context, a widow in that culture at that time, a widow was the most vulnerable person in a community. And here's why. At that time, in that culture, in that community, um, a woman's social and, and economic capital was completely wrapped up in her husband. So when her husband died, she lost everything. If a, woman had, if a, if a family had property, when the husband died, the wife loses the property. It's no longer hers. So here it is. A widow is like someone who has no rights, no capital, no influence. So if you are trying to just get influence and be political, like you would never engage a widow because they have no capital to give you. But aren't you grateful that Jesus came for all people, especially the vulnerable? And he elevates the widow here. Because he even accused them, you devour widows' houses. Here's what would happen in the culture. Catch this. Widows were often, um, they were often deceived. They were often taken advantage of. Because they knew, they, they didn't know how to navigate the culture. So they knew we can take advantage of these widows, and they often were. And he accuses the teachers of the law, you devour these widows' houses. So then in verse 41, he then sits down opposite the place where offerings were put. And watched the crowd put their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a few cents. Let me give some context. In the temple at that time, they would have 13 brass receptacles up front here. And you would come forward to give your offering. Now, mind you, they did not have cash nor visa or MasterCard. Maybe MasterCard. We don't know yet. No. Um, so when they dropped their offerings, they were metal coins. So they dropped metal coins and brass receptacles. So when you gave your offering, everyone knew how much you gave. Because you were either like a dink or a da -da -da -da, you know. And those who were wealthy and a teacher of the law were very proudful. Like, look how, many, look how much I gave. They'd given large amounts. And then he says the widow here gave two, two coins. They're known as two mites. <clears throat> And two mites were the, was the lowest form of acceptable offering you could give the temple. Two mites in our modern economy is one cent, one penny. So then what happens next? This, this, here's, a, here's a big shift. Everyone would think, oh, man, Jesus is most impressed with my large gift. Like, look at me, Jesus. Boom. But here's what he does. Watch this. He then calls over his disciples. He says, truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put more in the treasury than all the others. They gave out of their wealth. I mean, they gave their leftovers. They gave out of their abundance. But she gave out of her poverty. She put in everything, all she had to live on. Now, listen, we have to, we have to, we have to confront some natural minds that's in this moment. If you would have saw this woman, 
That word live is the Greek root word for biology. It means she gave what she needed to sustain her life biologically. And you would think Jesus would have said, oh, no, 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 please don't give. Like, you need this money. Like, you need to be the recipient of charity, not the giver of charity. But what does Jesus do? He commends her giving in faith. She gave everything she had. And here is the shift. Because they gave their leftovers, she gave out of her lack. She gave sacrificially. And here's, here's the, and this is why today's message is called Generous Life. Because God does not call us to be generous with our leftovers. He calls us to be generous with our lives. I want to share with you three truths from this passage and the scriptures that, that we need to embrace to live a generous life. And let me just say this. Do you know that you were actually designed and created to be generous? Because you were made in the image of God. And God so loved the world that he what? Gave. You, I heard it said once by uh, a theologian, they said, you are most like God when you give. Because the very essence and nature of our God is generous. Here's the first truth you have to embrace, though, is that for number one, is that contentment must be our posture. This woman had to have been content in order to give everything she had to live on. Like she wasn't saving for something that would satisfy something on the inside of her. She was content exactly with what she had. Here's why it's important. Because Matthew 6, 21, Jesus says this, that where your treasure is, your heart will be also. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one, love the other. You'll be devoted to one or despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Jesus shares a general principle here. In that culture, it was common to have servants. So he says you cannot have two masters. And that would, have been, that would have been understandable to every person there. Well, yeah, you can't have two masters because you have to follow one. If you follow one, that means you can't follow the other. And he says in the same way, you cannot have two lords. You either must follow. And then he calls out a type of master. He says, you're either going to follow me or money. You know why I believe? Because Jesus knew in that culture, as it's true in our current modern culture here in the U.S., money is a master. Would you agree? Come on, we got a card named MasterCard, people. <laughs> Our culture not even playing. Like, what are we going to name it? MasterCard, <laughs> you know, because it's a master <laughs> for everybody. And, and he, he understands, so he calls it out. Jesus calls for undivided loyalty. Jesus says, where your treasure is, your heart will be. I heard a pastor, Jabin Chavez, say this recently. It really stood out to me. It's based on this passage. He said this, that money is either a tool in your hand or it's an idol in your heart. It's either a tool that you leverage and you steward and you use for the glory of God in Jesus' name or it's a master in your life. It's the Lord in your life. That's the words of Christ. It's either one or the other. It's, it's either him or money, he is saying. As I was thinking about this divided loyalty, you know, a few verses later in Matthew 6, he says to seek first the kingdom of God. I was reminded some years ago, I went to a Washington uh, commander's game uh, years ago, and they played the Philadelphia Eagles. It's a Monday night football game. And I'm walking up to the stadium. Maybe you've experienced this, um, this, this, this cultural phenomenon. And there were grown men in their 30s and 40s punching each other in the face already. Come on. It was like 5.30 in the afternoon. Probably had some drink in them, I'm presuming. Right? And it's like, and they're like wearing opposing team's jerseys. 
and they're not on the team. Come on, somebody. <laughs> it was clear. It's like you're not in football shape, bro. Um, and, and they're fighting each other. So, like, the, the tension was hot, right? You know, Washington and Philadelphia, real, you know, big rivals. So, and I, so I go into the, my seat. Somebody gifted a ticket. So I go to my seat. And um, when I get to my seat, the guy sitting next to me, it, I came right from work. So I was wearing a button-down shirt. And he's like, he's like, who are you rooting for? Like, yelled at me. I'm like, Phew. he also had a few drinks, I believe. Um, he's like, who are you rooting for? And I was like, I was thinking to myself, like, I don't really have a team because I, I cheer for God's team, the Baltimore Ravens, right? Come on, somebody. <laughs> Jesus right now on the throne is interceding for Lamar Jackson in Jesus' name. Come on, who's with me? All right, no one. There was like two last service, but all right, come on, my people. Um, that's not theologically accurate. Do not take that as truth. It was not. It was my personal feeling. Um, but so I, I didn't have a team, but, but he had a Washington jersey on, and I didn't want to get punched in the face. Come on, right? So I was like, I got kids and a wife at home. I can't come home, like, punched in the face. So I was like, oh, I'm cheering for Washington, you know? Um, but, but here in this moment, he was demanding loyalty. Like, who, you got to pick one. Now, Jesus had a much gentler tone, <laughs> but that's what he's saying. Like, you, you have to pick one. You can't say, well, I, I want to pursue money and wealth. Listen, and I'm going to get to this point. Money is not bad. Money is not evil. Please hear that. We're going to talk more about that. It's not a bad thing. Let me say it this way. God has no problem with you having money, but God has a very, 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 very big problem with money having you. He's got a very big problem with that because money is a master. And here's why. Don't, don't hear that as like, man, God, you're very demanding. No, he's trying to save you from destructive decisions because he, know he knows that money is an oppressive master. Randy Alcorn wrote a great book called The Treasure Principle. He says this, there's a powerful relationship between our spiritual condition and our attitude and actions concerning money and possessions. So what's our response? The Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Timothy 6. He says, Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. That word godliness means to be devoted to Christ. That word contentment means to be find your sufficiency in Christ. So he's saying, listen, that, that what's great gain in your life is to pursue Christ and find your sufficiency in Christ. Therefore, you don't end up making destructive decisions out of discontentment. Have you ever made a bad choice when discontented? We often make destructive choices when we're discontent, don't we? And we have to acknowledge this. We are culturally conditioned to be discontent. We now have access to social media. We can see hundreds or thousands of our friends vacations every day. Come on, somebody. And you're like sitting there in your office or on your Zoom call being like, I wish I was in Maldives right now. Um, <laughs> right? Or come on, I remember when we first bought our house. Literally, maybe you had this experience. Three months after we bought our house, we got a notice from a real estate agent encouraging us to sell our house and buy a new house. It's like, bro, I just moved into my house. And how many of you have moved? Moving is not of God, right? Come on. Like, I don't feel the Lord in moves. Like, the Lord is like, I'm out. I, I don't know. So, or get this. Like, if you bought a car from a dealership, like, every year. Like, I have a 2012 Honda Pilot. And every year, the dealership will say, hey, 
the 2022 Honda Pilot just came out. Here's your trading value. Get it. I'm like, bro, I'm about to drive this thing into the ground. Come on, it's a Honda. It's going to last 70 years. I'll go before it goes probably. Come on. But have you experienced this? Like they keep trying to, or come on, you search for a shoe once on the internet. Next thing you know, you got seven ads on Facebook. Or every weekend, your favorite retailer emails you on Friday. Huge discount this weekend only. 35% next weekend. Huge discount this weekend only. It's like, but we, we buy it, right? Come on, well, maybe I should get a new outfit. I are, are you seeing this, church? We are conditioned to be discontent. Maybe I should get that new car. Maybe I do need a bigger house. You know, I do deserve a new outfit. It's been a week, you know? So please feel no condemnation if you fall into that. Because you've been conditioned by a consumeristic culture. Who Can we just be honest for a second? A lot of our cultural practices make money their master. And we know that discontentment will lead you to make destructive decisions. At least people will get into consumer debt that they didn't need to get into. Do you know the number one cause of arguments in marriage is the mistress of money? Do you know that there are people, we've seen this, we've seen people burn themselves out working for a buck, get a second and third job, not because it's out of a need, but out of want. We've seen businesses fail because someone's discontentment led them to make poor decisions. And God's trying to save us from making poor decisions. Listen, this this is a note you can write down. Your discontentment will not be satisfied by something but by someone, and his name is Christ. So how do you, when you feel that discontentment, like I need, to, I need something, I need a vacation, I need, listen, take vacation, that's a side note, take your vacation days, but oh, I, need, I need that new car, I need that new, when you feel that, man, first kind of have a moment with the Lord, like, and just pursue, make sure you're pursuing God with all that you have, because he brings a contentment that no thing or no one else on this earth can give. Amen? Contentment's got to be our posture. Here's the second one, is that stewardship is our response. He, he made note that she had two coins and that the, everyone else threw in large amounts. Jesus is paying attention to the amounts that they give. He is, he is aware. I was reminded of Luke 16, 10, the words of Christ says this, Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. Whoever is dishonest with little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? Jesus brings a connection between your management of your money here on earth and if you can actually handle the spiritual blessings he wants to give you. That's profound. He says it's how you handle your, your worldly wealth. Both here and now, it refers to the grace of God and the peace of God and righteousness and joy. And then we see scripturally how we handle and steward all of our life here on earth will lead to rewards in heaven at the judgment seat of Christ. In fact, Rick Warren, pastor, says this, at the end of your life on earth, you will be evaluated and rewarded according to how well you handled what God entrusted to you. You know, I, I thought about it this way as a parent, and maybe many parents can relate to this. When your kid, kids want something more, you want to see first they can handle the little, right? 
I remember a few years ago, this has not stopped, by the way, so you can pray for me. Um, Our kids started bringing up they wanted a dog. And I tell our two older children, I said, I know you wanted a dog, but we gave you a little sister. (laughs) And they're better, right? I know that she tears up your room right now, but later it'll be better. So I remember it was a couple years ago, and I think actually Christina led this. We were like, well, let's see how they do with a plant. They planted something in our neighbor's garden. I'm like, let's see if they can handle a plant before we give them a, a live animal, right? <laughs> just a little word of wisdom. Um, let's just say we still don't have a dog, okay? The plants don't make it in the Burroughs children's uh, respond, <laughs> hands. So we still don't have a dog. Uh, we still have their sister, though. Um, <laughs> in the same way God's saying this, God's saying, listen, listen, church, God's saying, listen, I want to bless you with spiritual blessings. I want to give you eternal rewards. But what determines that is can you handle the dollars and cents I've entrusted you with? That's what he's saying. So what does it mean to be a, a steward? That word is two different Greek words means steward in the New Testament, which essentially means to be a manager, to manage what's been entrusted to you. Let me be also clear, because some of you are thinking to yourself, well, Jeremy, it's my money. Like, I earned it. I worked hard for it. And yes, you did. But God gave you the mind that you used to think to make that money. God put the breath in your lungs that you used to get up tomorrow to make that money. So whose money is it? It's not ours. And I know it's a hard truth, but the more you have the mindset of a steward rather than an owner, the more you will walk and experience the rewards of what God has for you. It's a mindset. Here's the first practice of biblical stewardship is you have to first guard against the love of money. Ecclesiastes 5.19, let me give you a, a, a truth before we get into that. Let me give you a basic truth you need to grab hold of, though. It says this, Sol- Solomon writes, when God gives someone's wealth and possessions, catch this, and the ability to enjoy them, meaning this, God has no problem with you taking a vacation, with you having a nice home, with you having the vehicle of, that you've been dreaming about. God has no problem with you getting a new outfit, none at all. He says for the ability to enjoy them. He says, but catch this, this is a gift of God. And when you receive a gift from someone, you want to honor the intent of the gift giver. And that's what we're supposed to do with our money. Here's what Paul says to to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, 9. He says, those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. The desire to get rich, for the desire, the Greek word for greed literally means the pursuit of more, the more, the like never satisfied, never quenched, like just more money, bigger house, new car, more success, more. And again, please hear this. We've been culturally conditioned to want the more, the next. God has no problem with those things, but when those things have our heart, that's when it's destructive. And he said it's like a trap. That word trap is like a, it actually, the little word in the Greek refers to an animal trap, like an animal who's walking around long, you know, mind their business, and then, boom, they're stuck. He's like, if you're pursuing money, if money is your primary pursuit to build wealth, is your primary pursuit not to honor God, you're going to find yourself trapped. You're going to find yourself stuck and have many harmful desires. That word harmful literally means to be, to be like infected. Like you, your soul will be infected by the pursuit of the more. He said, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. We're going to come back to that. 
Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves in many griefs. Paul references back to Christ's word. No one can serve two masters. He says those in their pursuit of money, catch this, those in their pursuit of money actually wander from the faith because they made money their Lord. He says they're pierced with many griefs. That word pierced, it means they're injured. Like they get injured by the pursuit of more. I thought it was profound. He says the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And, and he, as he was speaking, and as I was processing this, to go back to my previous comment, the number one cause of marriage arguments is money. So he, let me just send this to you. Perhaps your marriage problem is a money problem. The, 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 what drives the drug trafficking industry is the love of money. What drives most crime is the love of money. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. So listen, I'm not saying all problems, but all kinds of problems. So perhaps that personal problem you have, here's my question for you, is the root of it a love of money problem? Ask yourself these questions this week. Is, do, I, do I find my thoughts consumed with the more? Am I consumed with making more money, having more things? Ask yourself this, do I live beyond my means? Have I accumulated debt because of my desire for the more? Then ask yourself this, do I struggle to be generous? Do, do, like, and we're going to get to this. You have been created to be generous. And when, when we have a hard time being generous, have a hard time giving, that's usually a sign. There might be a dashboard indicator. There might be some love of money. And it will pierce you with many griefs. It will create other problems in your life. Billy Graham, the evangelist, says, If a person gets his attitude towards money straight, it will help straighten out almost, almost every other area of their life. Get your attitude about money straight. Here's a second principle of biblical stewardship. is have a plan for your money. Proverbs 21.5 says, The plans of the diligent lead to profit as surely as haste leads to poverty. You may have heard this, it's cliche, but it's true, is that a failure to plan is a plan to fail, that, that without a plan for your money. And that word haste, it literally means impulse, like, like you, you're an impulsive. Uh, anybody else ever, you're, you're, a, you're a recovering impulse buyer, come on, like you have that moment. And he says, and basically it's this, is telling your money where to go instead of your money telling you where to go. You know, when you have some financial freedom, you have the freedom to decide what you can do. But have you ever experienced this? I'm going to share more about this in a moment. Have you ever had some debt and you were limited to what you could say yes to because of the debt that you had? When you have the freedom financially, you can mint, the, 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 the money app Mint said that found that 65% of Americans do not know where their money goes. Have you ever been here before? I have. Where you get to the end of the month and you have more month than you have money? Come on. Like, who spent my money? <laughs> then you look in the mirror, and you're like, oh, it's me. <laughs> you ever do this? Come on, if you're married, and you get this bank statement, and you're like, I think somebody got our bank card. <laughs> and you know full well as you. <laughs> yeah, we need to check into this, honey. I think someone, I didn't do this. I would have never gotten that subscription. I would have never shopped at this store. No, never. Be honest. But sometimes we, we get those. So, so have a plan. Let me, let me give some practicals. Create a plan. Have a budget. 
If you don't know how to where to start, now some of you, again, some of you, this is basics, you know this, you live this out, you could teach this, you could teach classes on this. Some of you do teach classes on this. And I remember John G. Rockefeller, they interviewed him uh, years after he had made his fortune. And they said, what's, what's one thing you tell people? How to manage your money. And he gave them a principle. I don't know if he created this, but he, he made it popular at the time. He called it the 10-10-80 principle. Have you heard of this? You give 10% of your income away, which John G. Rockefeller was like, you give, the 10, you give the 10% away first. You give first. Because the Bible says it's more blessed to give than to receive. You then save 10%. You then live off of 80. 10, 10, 80. Now, some of you, you do this, and you can, you can give more. You can save more. Uh, but if you don't know where to start, that's a, that's a principle. 10, 10, 80. We believe, scripturally, that 10%, the first 10% goes back to the house of God, to church. Why? Because that's the tithe. We're going to talk more about that. Secondly, is have principles. I remember uh, <laughs> Christine and I had this conversation before. Um, when we would go to the grocery store hungry, Anybody else, when you go to the grocery store hungry, you spend more money? Anybody else? You like end up grabbing all these things. You're like, why did I buy that? You get to the, like, the end of the line, it's like $475. Like, what? So we were like, let's not go to the grocery store hungry, right? Like, it's like you create those principles. Or like, I'm not going to spend above such an amount without asking my spouse. Like, Create some principles to create some, some boundaries, some parameters in your life. Um, some of you are like, I need to not go to the grocery store when I'm hungry. <laughs> Lastly is accountability. Have someone hold you accountable. If you're married, your spouse is a great person to have that. Um, if you're single, have a good friend hold you accountable. If you're trying to really get a, free of some debt, save some money, be a better planner. Which brings us to our third and final, uh, well, not final, but the third uh, Stewardship principle is avoid debt, parentheses, I'm going to speak to this, when possible, and save money. There are sometimes life situations, emergencies, accidents, things happen, and debt is inevitable. I'm speaking more about consumer debt, unnecessary debt. The Bible says this in Proverbs 22, 7, the borrower is a slave to the lender. Anybody ever been in debt and you kind of felt that? At the fifth of every month, you had to pay somebody. Plus interest. You feel that weight, don't you? Some of you may feel it right now. Please don't feel any condemnation for that. My hope is you get inspired by the word of God to be better. CSNBC uh, reported this. 47% of Americans are currently carrying credit card debt. This is the crazy statistic. Lean into this. Shift did a study in 2021. They found that there are, there are 1.06 billion credit cards currently active in America. There are only a little bit over 329 million people in America. There are three times more active credit cards in our country than there are people. And again, there are times, listen, I know build credit, all of that. But, but be mindful because you felt that. Borrowers, say letter. That was my experience. So when I was in my early 20s, I had $60,000 in debt. Student loan. Car payment, credit cards. Financial Peace University, which we teach here at Catalyst, highly recommend it. I would say that's a faith in life course we teach. Take it if you haven't. It'll teach you all the basics. If you, if you already are kind of a financial whiz, you're good. but if, for most people, it, it'll help you. Um, and what they advise in that class, I just I cut up my credit cards at the time. I was like, I, I need to get rid of this credit card debt. 
But, but what I'm saying is this. I've been there and for several years felt the weight of those three payments that I had to make every single month. And uh, when you get free of debt, you feel this scripture and this freedom. Proverbs 21.20, a few verses later, says this. The wise store up choice food and olive oil, but the fools gulp there down. The wise save money. Save money. Uh, Go Banking Rates reported in 2019 that 69% of Americans say they have less than $1,000 in their savings. Um, I would encourage you, have a plan. Start that 10-10-80 principle. Please feel no condemnation. It's not the intent. But to inspire us to walk in freedom. Because here's the purpose of our stewardship, and this is our final, final point. The reason we want to steward our money well is because generosity is our lifestyle. We were created. We've been designed. God made you to be generous. You are most like God when you are generous. He says he elevates this woman, forgiving in faith. Again, she gave everything she had. 1 Timothy 6, 17, Paul says this, Teach those who are rich in this world, and for most of us in this room and online, we would be included in, that, in his definition of rich, just to be clear. Um, not to be proud or put trust in their money, which is so unreliable. Has anyone experienced over the past several years that money can be unreliable? The market can be unreliable? Inflation? Come on. Gas prices unreliable? Money is unreliable. What does Paul say? Put your trust in God. If anything has taught you in the last two years, you cannot put your confidence or trust in economies or governments or even your health. I'm not saying as an indictment upon anything other than this. Put your hope and your trust in your life in the kingdom that will never be shaken, the kingdom of God. Put your trust in God, he says, who richly gives us, check this, all we need for our enjoyment. So God has no problem with you enjoying life. Please hear that. Again, money's not evil. It's the love of money. Tell them to use their money to do good. They should be rich in good works, generous to those in need, always being ready to share with others. By doing this, they will be storing up treasure as a good foundation for the future so they may experience true life. Here's what Paul says. Is that you have been blessed by God financially. I know it's cliche, but it's true. But to be a blessing to others. If you wonder why, why has God blessed me? with the income I have, with the talents I have, with the education I have, with the network I have. He has blessed you with everything you have to be a blessing. God's got no problem with you enjoying it. But the primary purpose that you've been blessed is to be a blessing. Why, do you, why, why, do you, why should you save money? Why should you get out of debt so you can be a bigger blessing? Why should you guard against love and money so you can be a bigger blessing? Because what does Paul say? For those who do that, you actually experience true life. That word life is the same word in the Greek that Jesus used when he said, I came to give you life and life to the full. It's the word zoe. How do we experience the life that Christ had for us? You live a generous life. This applies to way more than finances, but please hear me. It definitely applies to your finances. For sure applies to your finances. But it's much bigger than that. Generous with your time, with your talents, with everything God has given you. Henry Drummond says this, The most obvious lesson in Christ's teaching is that there is no happiness in having or getting anything, but only in giving. 
I want you to catch this. The Science Journal in 2013, they did a study. They gave groups of people a $20 bill. And one group, they said, go spend it on yourself. Go get something nice. Go to Target, get yourself something. Then the other group, they said, you either give this to someone in need or you make a charitable donation. They came back. They did a self-report analysis of their kind of feelings of happiness. And they found that those who gave had an uptick of happiness. Those who kept it had no difference. They furthered the study that did longitudinal. They looked at those who received their, their year-end bonus. And those who gave out of their year-end bonus had an uptick of happiness. Those who did not give out of their year-end bonus had no discernible difference in their happiness. We're called to give. The Cleveland Clinic in 2020 uh, did a meta-analysis, and they said there's evidence that giving, that in giving, we secrete feel-good chemicals in our brains, such as serotonin, dopamine, and oxytocin. That you literally get a high from giving. Have you felt that before? Where you, you gave to something, you blessed somebody, you felt it. And it's the way we're wired. The American Journal of Public Health found that giving reduces mortality and lowers your stress levels. Church, I want you to catch this. Science is affirming that you were created to give. You're happier. You live longer when you give. So here's what the enemy wants to do. He wants you to live tight-fisted. He wants you to, he wants you to live to where you keep it to yourself. He wants you to have the love of money where you accumulate debt and you feel the burden of debt. Why? Because the oxytocin, the serotonin, the dopamine can't be released because you don't have the margin to give. Are you hearing me, church? Please don't feel condemnation. Feel inspired by the word of God and the spirit of God that there is a beauty in living a generous life. Let me share with you, and I'm going to close with this, three types of giving we see biblically. Here's the first one, spontaneous giving. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 9-11, you'll be enriched in every way so you can be generous on every occasion. That you can be generous so when you feel prompting. You've all experienced this. Have you ever felt led? You've been out to eat with some friends? And the check comes, and you just feel led to bless that waiter or waitress, right? Or you have this moment where you just felt blessed maybe to, come on, send someone the ministry of Uber Eats. Come on. Or, or, or you, you, you felt led to give an offering, maybe even recent, all the efforts that's happening in Ukraine, uh, which I shared before. We've been, we've been generous with two different organizations there that are on the ground um, serving people. But you feel, you feel that, that's spontaneous. You feel that lead. I had somebody ask me years ago, they felt led spontaneously give up, to give a gift to their church. They, they asked me. They were kind of newer to faith. They said, they said, is this God, Jeremy? They were like, I'm trying to figure this out. Is this God leading me to do this? And I said, well, John 10.10 10 says the enemy, the devil, wants to steal, kill, and destroy. So the enemy is a thief. He's not a giver. He's a taker. And more than likely, it's probably not our flesh, Right? So I assume the nature and character of God is generous. So if I feel led to give, I assume it's God because I am most like him when I give. So use that filter. If I feel led to give somewhere, it's probably God. It's probably God. Uh, secondly is systemic giving. First Corinthians 16, 2, Paul says, On the first day of every week, each of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income. So a percentage, a proportion. 
works, saving it up so when I come, no collections will have to be made. Paul says, come to a percentage giver. Now you plan your giving. Can I give you an encouragement? Put giving as a top item on your budget. Like, what are we going to get? We're going to plan out. This is what we're going to give. Deuteronomy 14.23, the most referred biblical type of proportional giving is the tithe. Deuteronomy 14.23, the purpose of tithing is to teach you to always put God first in your lives. To put God first. That's the purpose. The tithe in the Hebrew simply means the tenth. It was practiced before the Mosaic Law. It was written into the Mosaic Law. It was practiced in the New Testament. Jesus said don't neglect the tithe. If you look at the early church history, it was practiced in the early church. In fact, they gave well beyond the tithe. The tithe, historically, in Scripture and in the church, has been the foundation of Christian giving. The the front door into Christian generosity has been the tithe. Now, people have asked me, Jeremy, do I have to tithe? You don't have to tithe. Just like you don't have to read the Bible. You don't have to pray. You don't have to forgive. Aren't you grateful that because of Christ's death on the cross, you don't have to do anything to earn God's love? But just like you should pray, you should read your Bible, you should tithe. You should. Why? Because God's character and nature has not changed. God was good when he said to keep the law in your heart, he was good when he said, bring the whole tithe. It's the same God, same principle, same purpose. It's to, to, to bless us, to be a blessing. Uh, Malachi 3.10 says this, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see that I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour so much blessing that there will not be room enough to sort. Again, it was law then, it's not a law now, but it's a, it's a biblical principle that we should practice as followers of Christ. And he says, I will pour out so much blessing upon you. In other words, I will bless you to be a blessing. Here's what the tithe does, church. It provides spiritual food in the house. We have kids right now learning about Jesus because of your tithe. Last week, we had 164 people serving our community in significant ways because of your tithe. We have people growing in their faith in community groups and faith in life courses because of their tithes. We have people watching in South Africa, in Germany, in Sweden, and around the world because of your tithe. Are you following me, church? It provides spiritual nourishment. That's the primary purpose of it, is it provides nourishment in the house of God for the purpose of the mission of Christ. And God blesses us to be a blessing. Now, some of you hearing this, it sounds very overwhelming, and I understand. I've shared my story before. I remember when I first came to faith in Christ as an adult, I was just a spontaneous giver. And um, I had a, a, a close friend of mine challenge me to tithe. It's the one scripture, all of scripture, where God says, test me in this. It's the only time he says it. He says, test me. So this person said, test God in this. Can I tell you, I've never not tithed since. I don't say it as a a reflection on me, as a reflection on him because of his goodness and his grace. Again, please hear this. This isn't some kind of like, if you do it, God will bless you and you get that new car. (laughs) No, you might not get that new car. You might not make any more money. But God will bless you to be a blessing. God will give to you so you can be generous and do good works. And can I tell you, I'm grateful someone challenged me. And hear this today. I'm challenging you. Let me ask you this. If your salary was to drop 10% tomorrow, could you live? 
for most of us in the room, he could make it. He'd figure it out. I believe God's worthy of your sacrifice. I'm not saying, listen, if Catalyst is in your home, you don't have to tie. This isn't about give to Catalyst. Like, this isn't about this. This is about your spiritual life. Honor God in this area and see that he will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour so much blessing on your life that you cannot receive it. Amen? Got very quiet in this church. We'll move on. I love you. I love you. Or I wouldn't tell you this. Listen, love, skirting the truth is not love. Telling the truth in love is love. And I love you, church. I do. And there's no condemnation. If you're like, I'm not ready yet, that's okay. It's between you and God. Let me challenge you with this. If you're not ready for the 10%, start with 3%. Five. Become, a, become a proportionate giver. Become a regular giver and see the goodness of God. Here's the last step of giving. I'm going to close with this. Is sacrificial giving. Sacrificial giving. And the worship team can come. 2 Corinthians 8, 2, Paul writes this. In the midst of their very severe trial, referring to the Macedonian church, their overflowing joy, their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. I testify they gave as much as they were able even beyond their ability, entirely on their own. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. The Macedonian church were in poverty. Again, you would expect they'd be the recipients of charity. And they are pleading with Paul, please let us give to Jewish Christians. Like, we want to take part in this. Why? Because they knew Acts 20, 35, where Jesus says, it's more blessed to give than to receive. And for clarity, the word blessed there in the Greek is the word makarios. Do you know what makarios means in the English exactly? Is happy. You are happier. You are, it is, you'll be more happy if you give than you receive. The Macedonian church were simply so much, they gave out of their poverty. They were in poverty and they wanted to give generously. Sacrificial giving in those moments, and many of you have experienced this, where you feel led to give and it's a sacrifice. It's, it's a sacrifice. Sacrificial giving is, is, number one, it's prayerful. It's a leadership of the Holy Spirit. Where you feel like God puts it on your heart. I'm to give this gift. You know what I've also found sacrificial giving? It's, it can be painful. Because you can think to yourself, man, I know so many other places I could spend this money right now. But you feel a leadership from the Lord. Like, I need to give this amount. But it's, got, it's purposeful. It's purposeful. To where you know, like, this is serving a kingdom purpose. And can I tell you, I know so many people in the life of Catalyst Church, they have lived this out. I remember several years ago, there was someone in our church who... They, were, they had saved for a wedding. And they felt God told them to give their entire wedding fund in an offering. Remember I told you God blesses you to be a blessing? And do you know what happened two months later? Somebody came forward and was able to pay for their wedding and their wedding fund. Please hear this. This isn't a give-to-get message. But God will bless you to be a blessing. He's a good father. He's not trying to withhold from you. He's not trying to take from you. I know somebody else who twice God told him to actually empty his bank account. And every time God's taking care of him and his family. I'm not saying it's a thus says the Lord for you. I'm just saying and be, be sensitive to the Holy Spirit when God's calling you to give sacrificially. If it's prayerful, it might be painful. If it's purposeful for his mission, it might just be him. C.S. Lewis says, I do, I do not believe one can settle how much, how much we ought to give. I am afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. 
My last scripture, I'm closing with this. Jesus said in Matthew 6, 19, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and vermin destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moth and vermin do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. In that culture, they didn't have 401k. They didn't have the stock market. They didn't have all of that. But what they did have, their wealth was in livestock and was in goods. So their livestock would oftentimes be infected and sometimes die with vermin, insects especially sheep. Moths would destroy their cloths, their clothing, their fine silks. And theft was a huge problem in that community. So he says, listen, you're storing up all this goods here on earth, but we all know moth and vermin will destroy it. We all know that thieves are going to break in and steal it. And again, to go back to the scripture, because the market money is unreliable. We can't count on it. He says, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Do you know, you go to a financial advisor, to get advice and counsel on how to invest your money so when you get to a certain age, you have enough money to live on. And Jesus is your eternal financial advisor. And he's saying, listen, steward your your life, your finances in such a way that you store up treasures in heaven through your generosity in my name and for my glory. I want to challenge you to live a generous life, church. It starts with contentment in your heart. And stewardship of what he's entrusted you with, stewardship of your finances, and generosity with your life. Can you buy your-